KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, Hadas, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Hadas Kuznets is a reporter here at KYW News Radio, and she did a series on the anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi death camps and the concentration camps. And she's joining us today to talk about this. And, you know, we've been blown away, Hadas, by the stories that you've gathered and what the people you've spoken to, you think it's been 75 years. You think you've you've heard it all because no. you've heard yeah. people talk and then you listen to somebody else tell their story. And it's it's breathtaking. It really is. And, you know, I cover Holocaust anniversaries often and I've been here for a long time with KYW News Radio. And every time I learn something new, I always feel the emotion talking about it with you. I mean, I can feel like I want to cry about, you know, just what people went through and also the healing process. So just a really quick historical background. January 27th, 1945 marks the Soviet liberation of the death camp Auschwitz. Other death camps came later on. And this is the United Nations anniversary. So they call it International Holocaust Remembrance Day. This week, you know, we're marking that because it is a round number. When you get up to these big numbers, like 75, we're getting close to a point in our history in time where we will no longer have first-person eyewitnesses to one of the biggest atrocities ever, the, mm-hmm. the darkest time in history. And you have people that say, I was there, and this happened, and this happened to me. Ernie Gross barely survived the Dachau death camp. Don Greenbaum was one of the American soldiers who liberated it. 75 years later, they're telling their stories. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Let's start with Ernie Gross. Can you tell me who he is and how did you meet him? So Ernie Gross is a Holocaust survivor. He's a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor. He, I met him through my contacts with the Holocaust Awareness Museum and Education Center. And I gave him a call. I reached out to him and I set a time to go to his house in Northeast Philadelphia. Okay. Ernie Gross. Ernie, how old are you? I'm going to be in July 91. 91. So when you were liberated, how old were you? When I was liberated, I was 16. So take me back to the beginning of Ernie's story. What happened to him? He was 15 years old when he went to Auschwitz. So he started at Auschwitz. They were placed on these cattle car trains. People packed into way more than capacity. And they did not know where they were going. There was a lot of commotion. Nazis telling them, you know, leave your stuff. You're... you're, just leave your things here and everybody get off the train. And there was, by a stroke of luck, he was able to kind of speak with one of the Jewish prisoners of Auschwitz. You know, this guy's like looking at him and he's not really sure what's going on. And he catches his eye and he says, how old are you? And he says, I'm 15. He says, well, when you go in front of Mengele, you're going to say you're 17. He didn't know who this guy is. So Joseph Mengele was a doctor in the Nazi regime. He's famous Uh, famously called the Angel of Death. And he was the person that when you went to Auschwitz, he would say you go to the left or you go to the right. He said, when you face Mengele, you better say you're 17. If you say you're 15, you're going to go where your parents went. 
I said, where, where did my parents go? He said, they went to the left. I said, what happens when you go to the left? He said, because your father hold on a younger brother and your mother hold on a younger sister, doesn't matter how old you are, you go to the left. And I said, what happened after then? He said, you see the two buildings? They're going to go into the first building. They're going to tell them to take off all their clothes. They're going to take a, a shower. And instead of shower, gas is going to come. And as soon as they die, the next building is a crematorium, and they're going to go in there. I'm listening to this. My brother listening to this. And I thought, he's finished. Then he tells me to look up in the sky. He said, you see how dark the smoke is? The sun cannot get through it. This is going to be your parents in, 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 in four hours. And we're getting closer and closer. And I'm getting, like, nervous and shaky. And when I already saw Mangala, and he looked at my two brothers, right away he told them to go to the right. When you go to the right, that means you're going to go to a labor camp. Now, now it's my turn. And he asked me in German, we all be still. And because I was nervous and shaking, it, it, didn't, it didn't come out. Then he asked me again, we all be still. By that time, I knew already I better stand up straight to look a little taller, and I should say it loud. I did that. He told me to go to the right. So I was happy at least uh, I'm safe now. He goes to the right, and he's like, and I was happy. Like, how can you be happy yeah. in this situation? I'm happy to live another day. My brother and I talked about everything, but not about the information we got was going to happen to our parents. And there was a, a table with electric shavers, and they told us to get undressed completely, and everybody has to shave everybody's hair. Because I was such a short time in Auschwitz, they had no time to give me the number, so they gave it to me in my jacket. And my number, I will never forget, is 71,366. My brother, they took right away to a camp, and now I'm left alone. And I was very uh, scared. Uh, now I'm not with my parents, not with my brother. What's going to happen to me? And they took me later on to a city called Kaufering near Munich. And in that Kaufering was seven camps. It doesn't matter what camp you go to, as long as you don't wind up in camp seven. Everybody said, make sure you do whatever they tell you, because once you go to camp seven, this is the end of the line. What did Ernie tell you about life in the camp? What was that like? He described it as obviously very difficult, humiliating, and you're always battling hunger, always. There was nothing to eat. Uh, they gave me, uh, you want me to show you what they gave you there? Yeah, yeah, sure. He is telling us about this portion of the story. He gets up, goes to the kitchen, brings back a plastic cup. He tells his stories, very animated. He's very visual. Where they gave me a, a cup like this, um, Lubinum. They told me, make sure you don't break it, make sure nobody steals it from you, because this is the one you're going to get your food. In the morning, you're going to get a little bit of coffee. When you come home at night, you, you get soup. 
when I heard that one and I had string in my pocket, so I figured I'm going to put it on me. Wherever I go, this goes to make sure nobody's going to steal it from me. Yeah. And then they gave us uh, a brown bread and they told me this is going to be for eight people. So no matter how we sliced it, somebody had to give, get the two ends. And we didn't know how to do it. So we took eight pieces of paper from one to eight, the same in a plastic bag, whatever you picked was yours. In my group was a father and son. The father picked the end and the son got the middle. And the father was next to me and he said to his son, you know, I need more energy than you. How about I give you my end, you give me your biggest piece. For a moment he thought about it and he said, no, I'm just as hungry as you are. That was my first lesson. If I want to survive and you have something extra, you don't share it with nobody. If you share it, you might not survive. He was very um, entrepreneurial. He, you know, used his ingenuity to try and survive. I guess you had to, you know, figure out, like think outside the box if you were going to survive. So he talks about if I could collect, you know, a certain number of cigarette butts, then maybe I could trade that for a piece of bread. Because the way they looked at it, that every day they're going to smoke one of these butts, they're going to be at ease. And the way I looked at it, with an extra piece of bread, I'm going to live a day longer. So how are you going to find this? But I was lucky. Sometimes they asked me to to go to the train station and clean the platform and the bathroom. So when the train comes, the Germans throw down the cigarettes. It took me two weeks to find seven cigarettes. Now I come home to the camp, happy. I'm going to have another piece of bread, but I don't know who the, who the smokers are, who they're not. You didn't have to know. I took them, put them in my hand. In two seconds, I was surrounded with buyers. So many people wanted to buy them. Take us to the end of Ernie's journey, the end at the camp. What happened to him? What, what, can you tell us about the day he was, I guess, removed from the work camp? What happened? So he was put on a train to Dachau. And they wanted to kill him. They were going to send him to the crematorium that day. Just because? Because he was no longer useful. He didn't have any more energy. He couldn't work. And they were done with him. And how old is he at this point? He's 16 now. He's been, he came in at 15. He left at 16. Finally, I got to the point I couldn't produce enough. And I wind up in, in, uh, in Camp 7. Camp 7, they don't feed you no more. Uh, because you're not working, you don't get the food. And after the third day, they took us to Dachau. Once we got out of the train, I don't know how long it took to walk into Dachau. All I know is that uh, the line was unusual long. I couldn't even see the crematorium. We already knew why we were there. And it was drizzling, and I was tired. And uh, my feet couldn't carry my body anymore. Never getting closer and closer. And it got to a point that I already saw the building. Instead of being scared what was going to happen to me in half an hour, actually I was like happy to get it over with because I could no longer uh, able to cope. Uh, all of a sudden something unusual happened. The German soldier near me is throwing down the weapon. 
He's running away. We don't. We are still standing in line. We don't even know what to do. I turned around. I see there is the American Jeep with four soldiers. They were liberated. By that time, I hardly weighed eighty-five pounds, and uh, I don't know exactly what happened next. All I know is that the next day, I found myself in a sanatorium, which is uh, to uh, recuperate. So you were waiting in line to the crematorium, and that's when you were liberated. Yes. Uh, if Dan Greenbaum with the other four soldiers would have come an hour later, I wouldn't be here talking to you. So in part of your series, Adas, you talked to Ernie, the survivor, but you also talked to a liberator. Can you tell me who that was and what his story is? Yes. So announce your name for me. Don Greenbaum. And your age is? My age is, I'll be 95 in March 10th, 2020. A liberator (laughs) of the Dachau extermination camp, one of six death camps in Europe at the time. I was born in Winfield. Uh, What year? 1925. All right. When he was 18 years old, fresh out of high school, his whole senior class wanted to go into the army. It was a very, very patriotic time. They went through training. We learned how to march, how to, how to dig a foxhole, uh, how to take care of ourselves. But we also learned how to kill somebody. Because we were shown the movies of the German army being trained to kill us. And our slogan on our barracks was, kill or be killed. So here I am at 18 years old, learning how to kill another person. We trained in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where I became a forward observer with the artillery. We landed at Utah Beach a little while after the invasion, and then we realized that training was over. We saw the body bags. We saw the ambulances. We saw the guys coming home. Someone's brother, sister, uncle, whatever it was, were wounded. And from that day on, the next 4,000 miles and 286 days, we were in constant combat. November 9th, 1944, in Aachen, Germany, I was wounded. And I was sent to a field hospital for recuperation for about three weeks. I was then, then awarded a trip to Paris for some R&R, which was great. I'm there about three days, and every man gets called back who could carry a gun because of the Battle of the Bulge. And from there, it, this was... From December 15th to January 17th, then from the Battle of the Bulge, we went on to Munich. Now, this is so fascinating to me. So they're, they're, they're leaving the Battle of the Bulge. They're heading on to Munich, and they get orders. Listen, there's a supply depot on your way to Munich. He's thinking, all right, it's a place where the Germans are, where they refuel and maybe just get some food, supplies, ammunition, whatever. They say, take it out. They're, okay, no problem. They head in that direction. First thing he noticed was the stench that hit them about a mile out, like this odor of like, I don't know, just death hits him. So we're about a mile half outside of the so-called supply depot, which was called Dachau. A tremendous odor hit us. Men got violently ill. We were vomiting all over the place. We thought the Germans were using poison gas. But no, no one died. So we figured, what could this possibly be? We had no idea. We had no idea where we were. We had never heard the expression concentration camp or death camp. 
so we were not prepared for this horrific thing we ran into. Then we came across about 15 boxcars full of bodies, dead bodies in the boxcars, which I have pictures to show you of the bodies thrown in like pieces of wood. These boxcars came from all over the country. They were sent from other work camps that did not have crematoriums and were sent to Dachau to be destroyed. And the sky was black, and we had no idea what the black sky came from. We found that it was smoke for the crematoriums. The camp looked like a amusement camp of some sort. We came, it was beautiful outside walking. And we go in and we find these men behind barbed wire in striped-type pajamas weighing about 80, 85 pounds. We didn't know who they were. They didn't know who we were. Every language in the world, we didn't know what it was. Luckily, one of our men spoke Yiddish. And he said in Yiddish, we're American soldiers. We came to liberate you. You're free. Well, they started to leave the camp, but they had nowhere to go because they were in the camp all that time. We couldn't feed them. If we fed them, they died immediately. So we radioed back to the troops behind how, us. How did you discover that if you fed them, they would die? Is this something that you were told, or did you have to find this out the hard way? Some men were feeding them their K-Watt, their, their K-rations, which was all canned stuff. As we fed them, they, they couldn't digest it. So we radioed back to the camp, the guys behind us, come and bring blankets, a lot of medicine, and jello-type food jello and things like that which they did we were there about a, another day day and a half and our next objective was to go back and keep on going through germany but luckily the war was over may 8th a week later and we started on our way home at that particular time so we're talking about 1945 right so this is not a time where like today you have cell phone cameras you could take pictures of everything he showed us something else which he has you know his stuff, his memorabilia. And he pulls out these like eight sepia-toned photos of dead bodies in cattle cars, of piles of clothing and shoes, of, you know, just what it looked like. And he said, like, what are these photos? I'm showing you pictures of the boxcars that we came across. Who took these pictures? Uh, Our medic, because I didn't have a camera. Yeah, people don't believe this. That's just what we saw. These photos look, you've kept them in really great shape. I have to go to Staples and have them put in plastic, I think. Yeah. They're 75 years old. These These pictures pictures are 75 years old. Sure. Oh, my goodness. This is what you saw when you came upon the camp? Right. That's what we saw. Boxcar by boxcar. And he said he wanted a copy of that for his records, and then the medic gave him a copy of the photos that he took when he, they arrived at Dachau. We then knew why we were in the Army. We then knew why the U.S. was involved in a war to stop this, this maniac from doing what he was doing, going into country after country, just enslaving people, gypsies, the handicapped, the sick, whoever didn't meet his criteria was put to death. You know, on the death march, 
When they went to Auschwitz, if someone fell down, they shot them. They didn't pick them up. They didn't have time. They rode these boxcars for weeks without food and water, standing up, no room to sit down. Can you imagine? And it's astounding when you think about Ernie and Don being there on the same day, opposite sides of the barbed wire fence. Yeah. And Don happened, Don Greenbaum is Jewish. The idea here is, and I, I don't think this, this passes him lightly, that had he been born in another country, he would have been on the same side as Ernie of that barbed wire fence. The interesting thing, well, there are many interesting things about Ernie, but one of them was he searched for such a long time to find somebody to thank for liberating him. That is fascinating. So when he, you know, tasted freedom, he just really wanted to meet somebody like you mentioned. Finally, I came to the United States. I got married, had children, but it still bothered me that I, I didn't take any soldiers that liberated me. Every time I bought a paper, I looked in all kinds of papers to find somebody who would liberate Dachau to thank him, he saved my life. Funny story how I met Ernie. After six, 60 years. Unbeknownst to me, my wife wrote a, le- wrote a letter and a story about me saying I was the uh, artillery of World War II. I had a Purple Heart, a liberator in the camp, the Army Liberation for Dachau Concentration Camp. Don's wife put an article in the Jewish Exponent. I forgot about it, and they printed it, and I didn't know it. You said, I mean, I'd like to meet, but I didn't know how to do it. I know a name by the name of Warren, and he's uh, very good in Internet. I said, you have to find his phone number, because I have to get in touch. I called him up, and he same day that I called him, he said, I want to meet you right away. So Shelley and I got in the car and drove up to Tiffany Diner on Borkbrook Street and met Ernie and his son, Steve, a very emotional, hugging and all so and so forth. And he told me his stories, whatever he went through, I told him what I went through, and we are friends from that time on. And from that day on, which was 12 years ago, we began to speak all over the country. Together. Together. What's fascinating to me is that they found each other. One lives in Northeast Philadelphia. One lives in Balakinwood. Now they do speaking engagements together, often, all over the area. And, like, what are the chances that they would end up so close, living so close together? It's like kismet. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. How do they decide to kind of go on tour together? Because it's basically what they do. They tour yeah. schools, they tour centers, and they talk. How did that come about? Well, they came together, they met each other, and then they hooked up through the Holocaust Awareness Museum and Education Center. I do believe that they feel like it's a sense of, it's like a life mission. The ones that are willing to put themselves through this emotional roller coaster. Every time they tell their story, they do feel like they're kind of running against the clock. Are they still going to be around? They need to tell these 
stories in front of as many people as possible so that the students can say, oh, I met a Holocaust survivor. And makes me like really tear up when like when they talk about it's like so emotional they talk about they want to talk to in front of as many students as they can because they want to say you know now it's your responsibility to take on this legacy the war was over may 8th and we all started our trip home six months later i was discharged every gi that i could think of we all went through the same thing we accepted the gi bill of rights Went to college, got married, had children, and life went on, never looking back. About 50 years later, in the 90s, I heard the Holocaust never happened. And I called Gratz College, a predominantly Jewish college, and I called and said, I want to talk about it. I was there. I'm going to tell my story. And I started to speak to small groups here and there who were listening to me. And then, of course, I met Ernie 12 years ago, and now we've been really good gangbusters we've been all over the place you really like taking off in your 90s you're really doing a lot of work yeah i love it in april 29 we are invited to go back to germany to celebrate 75 years of uh, Dachau celebration and they already told us this is going to be the last one because the next five years most likely there are going to be enough people to come to celebrate so, so they're not going to not going to do it anymore. The only way people will know in some schools where I go, they're taping it. So when, the, when there's going to be no more survivors to speak, they're going to use the tape. All, I mean, your whole generation and these young guys, you, you, you saved these people. We didn't know. All we knew was that he was taking over country after country. People were starving. He was going crazy. He was going to invade us eventually. And we helped France and we helped Britain, and luckily it worked out well. When I came to the United States, I was, I was 18 years old. You were 18 years old? Yeah. Well, uh, eventually I got a job in a Jewish deli. And this lady, one day she said to me, you know, no use for you to be single. You got you to gotta find, find a wife again. Married children. I have somebody in New York. I'm going to invite her here for a, for a Shabbos lunch. And uh, you're going to come and you're going to meet her. The way she looked, I liked her right away. I was introduced to her. Her name is Bella. They didn't say she's a survivor or not. And I was introduced to her. My name is Ernest. But in, in ourselves, we knew we were both survivors. And it only how, took, how did you know? Uh, because she comes from from uh, from Kasio, which is Czechoslovakia uh, at that time, and I come from Romania. That means we must have been in the camp. And after six months, we got married. Uh, we were married for uh, nineteen and a half years. And you never talked about. Yeah. So one night, I one morning I woke up, and I said to myself. I was married for 19 and a half years, and I really don't know anything about my wife. I don't know what she went through. I don't know the name of the camp. That gave me courage to start talking. And from that day on, I, I volunteered to, to tell my story. And that was after she had already passed away? That was after, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
And that's the trauma speaking. Trauma silences people. For Ernie and for other survivors that do talk, which is the minority of survivors, which is a minority of victims, for for him, I mean, once they start talking, it seems like they can't stop. They, they're on a mission. They have to tell their story now. And it's a race against the clock, a race against time. When I spoke with uh, Sarah Botwinick, the marriage and family therapist that specializes in the Holocaust, she says that, you know, everyone has to do it at their own time, which, like I said, it can take a lifetime. Everyone has to do it their own time. But once you do start to speak about it, that's when you can get joy into your life because the silence is disconnection. And when you speak about your experiences, somebody that understands what you're going through that can just listen is very healing. The problem was when I, when I was liberated, my brain was already trained to be selfish. So I remember the first time when I met uh, my first wife, Bella, and we went out for dinner, and I ordered a steak, and it looked so good. She asked me to give her uh, a piece. But my brain told me, if I give her, I'm going to have less. And I actually told her that I'm very hungry, I can't do it. When I gave my three sons spending money every week, I gave it to them, but my my brain told me, you're going to have less. And I said, I don't want to live my life like this now. I want to be charitable. So what I did is, the first thing is, I, I joined an organization that I write a check. When I drove on the boulevard and the light was red and students were selling bottle of water, not only did I buy one bottle, I bought two bottles of water. So that's how I, I trained my brain to be, to be charitable. What's like the main message you want people to know about your experience? Well, I want them to know that uh, everybody counts. Uh, we have to get along. And you, you cannot forget, but you have to forgive. Because if you don't forgive... You are the one who are suffering. And uh, what for? It's better to be happy than having this in your mind. And you can't blame one for the other. I remember one time I spoke for adults. It was a mixture of people, Jewish and non-Jewish. And I was on the platform. And when I finished, they came over and shake hands with me. And one guy came over and says, can I ask you a question? I'm a German. I'm here on, on, on business. I wanted to hear a survivor talk. How do you feel about me? And I looked at him, and he looked like 50 years old. So that tells me either he wasn't born yet or maybe he was a, a young child. So why should I hate him? I told him, why should I hate you what your father did or your, or your grandfather did? He couldn't believe that I said that. He jumped up the, in the platform. <clears throat> he couldn't hug me enough. So that's my message, that you don't forget, but you have to forgive. Because if you don't forgive, you're the one who's suffering. And you have to try to get along. And if you're able to help, you got to help. I mean, honestly, when any time I talk to a Holocaust survivor, whether it be Ernie or any of the other amazing people with their stories, I have no problems, Carol. Like, I have no family issues, kid issues, work issues, nothing. Nothing. 
Like, how can you have a problem when you're talking to somebody that's been through the greatest atrocities in the world and then their philosophy on life is you have to forgive, you cannot forget, and keep on smiling because really nothing is so bad anymore. Every day when I was liberated, I made myself a promise that every day I got to make at least 10 people laugh. If I, can, if I don't meet them in person, then I call on the telephone. Always say something, they have to laugh. So uh, five days I go to Klein Life for lunch because it's better to eat with, camp, with people than by yourself. So I'm always somewhere. Yeah. Wherever I go, and I tell you something else. Nobody's facing me to be sad. When I walk into Klein Life at the lobby and I see a lady or a man that uh, looks like they lost their last friend, I take this out to the show. It, it was this little like business card that says, keep smiling. Keep smiling. And they do. They start smiling. So uh, nobody is passing me by to, to start looking or worry about something. Because if I see that... <laughs> Chuck Feldman, who works with them at the Museum and Education Center, says they don't call them survivors for nothing. These are fighters. The ones that are not eaten. Mostly 90s now. 80s if you were a child survivor. These are fighters. What is the message that you want to... What is like your legacy that you want, the message you want to leave? The the message you want... Unfortunately, anti-Semitism is showing its ugly head again. And there's no reason for it. I mean... The days of Germany, the economy was bad, and Hitler had an idea to go take what you want, and they went from country to country. Our economy is good today, and yet in the United States, anti-Semitism is arising again. Also in Europe, again. Uh, my legacy is to tell these kids, if I'm speaking to kids, because I'm not a magazine, I'm not a movie, I was there, I saw it my own eyes, Tell your parents what you heard. Tell your friends what you heard so this will never happen again. Hadas, thank you so much for being on In-Depth. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for telling these crucially important stories of the people who lived history. We have to thank Ernie and Don for talking with us because we know it was painful. We really appreciate that they were willing to share their stories with us. Absolutely. Thank you for the listeners, too, for sticking through, because some of these stories are really difficult to hear, but they're important to hear, and we have to hear them. So that that's important. And now that you've heard them, I'm sure what Ernie and Don would want me to say is, now that you've heard them, you can say something if someone says it didn't happen or it wasn't that many. KYW In-Depth is produced by Charlotte Reese. Our production coordinator is Ali Amato. Tom Rickard is the executive producer of KYW Original Podcasts. I'm Carol McKenzie. Make sure to subscribe to KYW In-Depth and help us get the word out by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again next week. Hi. 
I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen.